0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 135 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, I've gone through the audio of the 31st annual Canadian Mining Hall of Fame induction ceremony held here in Toronto earlier this year and picked out some highlights of the evening for you. The Northern Miner is one of the four founding sponsors of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, along with the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the Canadian Institute of Mining, Metallurgy and Petroleum, and the Mining Association of Canada. Remarkably, this was my 23rd Canadian Mining Hall of Fame induction dinner that I've been to since I started at the Northern Miner uh, back in 1997. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance, a group of 17 explorers, developers, and miners, all active in the Yukon Territory. Please visit their website at yukonminingalliance.ca to catch up on news and profiles of their members. You can follow the Yukon Mining Alliance on Twitter at, at @investyukon, all one word. <music> if you recognize our music for promoted content, that's what that is. Just a signal that first, we have a sponsored segment we call a Mining Minute. This Mining Minute is the final of four parts of a series with Amit Gupta. He's the chairman of Montreal-based gold explorer Yorbo Resources, which has gold properties in Quebec's Abitibi region, including a new joint venture with IAM Gold. So now we'll hear from Amit Gupta of Yorbo. So for
1: 2019, the first focus is what I call the Shibugumu Belt. So we extensively explored what, what is known as Scott Lake, which now we call Scott Lake East. We are doing surface drilling at Scott Lake West, because we believe the structure uh, continues on towards the west, but because there's a fault line and there would have been a shift of the structure, we're in the process of doing first some surface drilling to better understand where outcrops may exist, and then from there, do some deep drilling to understand what the extent of the structure may be. And then the second round of uh, drilling, or the second part of the work to be done at the Shibugum Belt, is to explore the other extreme of the structure, from our understanding. It's called KB, and we, we are now in the process of doing some geophysical work there to understand what we think is the structure, and then we have some drilling planned there to, again, further understand it. So those are the the main things that we're doing. We don't have to worry about it There's a lot of drilling going on, but that's going on under our agreement with IM Gold. So there is exploration going on. We are involved in helping IM Gold manage that exploration effectively in the drilling. It's a partnership deal, and, and we're not going to pretend that IM Gold isn't bearing the brunt of the responsibility.
0: And now we'll get into the Canadian Mine Hall of Fame speeches. I just want to let you know I've cut this down quite a bit. So people will get up and, you know, give a long list of people they're thanking. So I've cut that all out. These are just bits of highlights. So don't think these are the full speeches of the people. So if you do want to listen to the whole event or a particular person, I'll leave links to uh, the YouTube video where you can actually watch the whole event. Now, for the rest of the episode, you're going to hear quite a few voices. Most of them are introduced uh, as they come on the stage, that kind of thing. Some aren't, so you have to kind of figure it out, but just in order, some of the people appearing. Some of them are live on the stage, and a few people are appearing in the tribute videos. Most of them are identified here, but let me just go through the list. We've got Pierre Lassonde, chairman of Franco Nevada and the Canadian Mine Hall of Fame induction ceremony MC. John Baird, the Canadian Mine Hall of Fame chair. Louise Grandet. Agnico Eagles, Senior Vice President of Environment and also a Hall of Fame director. Zena McLeod. She's the great-grandniece of Kate Carmack, uh, one of the inductees. Lisa McDonald, Executive Director of the PDAC. Janet Meekle, widow of inductee Brian Meekle, Jim Franklin, another inductee. Chris Twig-Molsey, if I got that name right, from Hatch and a Hall of Fame director as well. Sandy Laird. He's... Uh, The fourth inductee, we have Anthony Vaccaro from our minor. He's the publisher and also a Hall of Fame director. And our last inductee is James Gill.
2: Aspects of history are sometimes overlooked. Getting back to Kate now. The record-keeping and journalism in the Yukon at the time of the Klondike discovery tended to downplay the contributions of both Indigenous people and women. We are thankful to the Yukon Chamber of Mines, who, with the active participation of Indigenous communities from the Yukon, and particularly the youth of the Kwan Dun Nation, who I believe are sitting at this table before me. So I'd ask them to just rise and receive a round of applause for their work in bringing forth the nomination of Kate Carmack. It's, it's wonderful to see young Aboriginal people reaching back into their history and helping us to correct some of the oversights that the rest of society has made in the past. So the information that was brought to the Hall of Fame through the Yukon Chamber of Minds, coupled with this book. This book was written by an author called Deb Vanas. You can see the cover on the screens. You know... The last important book about the Klondike that most Canadians know was Pierre Burton's book, published in 1972. Kate Carmack is mentioned briefly in two paragraphs of that book. 400-page book, Kate didn't score. This is a deeply researched biography of Kate, which shows how integral she was to the rest of those Yukon discoverers being at the right place in the right time. So I encourage you all, if you can, get a hold of this book and have a good read. You'll learn more than just Kate, you'll learn about the Yukon and all the wonderful things that went on up to the discovery. So, without further ado, I welcome our esteemed Master of Ceremonies back to the podium to get the ceremony underway. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you, John. Uh, You know, our industry must do something right, because um, from some of the uh, inductees that have been named, we have uh, some people come, like Mac Watson, who's uh, getting on in age. I won't even say how old he is today, but the Red Cross informed me that within a few years, they're gonna retire his blood type. (laughs) And that's probably just before they're gonna use carbon dating on him. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, it's now time to uh, get the show on the road, and our first inductee tonight is Kate Carmack, or Shaw Claw, in her traditional language. I hope I didn't mess it up, and I do my best. She is an integral part. You've heard of the story of the Klondike Discover, and she will be inducted, uh, added to the Klondike Discover in, that were inducted in 1999. So please take a moment to listen to Kate's absolutely fascinating story. And here to present the award to Zena McLean, Kate's great grandniece, is Louise Grandin, Senior Vice President at Agnico Eagle and a Director of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Louise, would you please come to the podium?
4: Thank you, Pierre. It's both an, an honour and a great privilege to present this award in recognition of Kate Carmack, the first Indigenous woman to be inducted in the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Kate's role in the Klondike discovery will live on in the records of this organization and in the collective memory of our proud industry. Thank you to Kate's great-grandniece, Zina, for accepting the award on Kate's behalf. Zina, please come up to the podium. That is my daughter, Shawatke, and my cousin's daughter, Agay. Gunashish, Thank you. On behalf of Kate Carmack, I cannot tell you it's such an honor, and I am truly delighted to be up here representing my ancestor, Kate. I also want to acknowledge that Doc and the Deschaton families to which Kate belonged. John Baird once told the White Horse Star, you go into the history of the gold rush, you find it heavily centered on the men. Now we place Kate Carmack at the scene of the crime and have given her her due recognition. Kate Carmack's the Tlingit woman from Carcross now joins only two other women in the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. She is making history as the first Indigenous woman to be inducted for the role she played in the discovery of gold on that fateful day of August, 1896. Based on what we know who Kate was as a person, she would have been incredibly proud and humbled to be recognized as a mining icon. And then she would have gone back to work, building shelters, packing, picking berries, setting snares and sewing. This First Nation woman was given the name Shatala at birth which translates to mean older than old, and is bestowed on somebody who carried knowledge far beyond their years. As a young woman, along with her family, Kate was hired to carry supplies along the Chilkoot trading route, sometimes carrying loads up to 75 pounds for men looking to explore the Northern Territory. In latter years, as a married woman, she sold her mukluks, and mittens to support her husband's prospecting adventures. Her traditional knowledge and skills as a competent and efficient woman kept her family fed and alive while they picked their way along the creeks looking for gold. During the winter of 1896, one of the coldest on record, even the gold they had discovered could not heat a cabin or fill a stomach. Kate kept food on the table for her brother, her nephews, and her husband by hunting, setting snares, selling or sewing, and doing laundry for the other miners. It may have been while doing laundry, getting tea water, and washing up in the nearby creeks where Kate may have come across those first gold nuggets. My great-grandfather, Patsy Henderson, the nephew of Kate, was also at Rabbit Creek in 1896. He lectured on the gold rush and shared stories of those who were at Discovery. One such story was of Kate's husband, we won't mention his name, musing, my little wife Kate will make me a rich man someday by bringing me nuggets From all the gold she was found washing in her wash water, and, man, did she ever clean up. In the spring of 1897, saw the claim of the newly minted Bonanza Creek netting $100,000 worth of gold in six months from discovery. The discovery of Bonanza Creek was a historical event for the world, for the Yukon and for my family. My paternal grandfather, or my paternal great-grandfather, Tom Dixon, was a bodyguard for Skookum Jim Mason. Tom often remarked on the silent partners buried in the gold fields of the Klondike. And any of you placer miners out there, I think you know what I'm talking about. Kate was that silent partner, but not in that way. Kate wasn't silent in life. Opinionated, she spoke her mind. She re- she viewed herself as equal to any man. It was the telling of the gold rush that made her a silent partner. Thanks to the efforts of Elaine Vance Duchesne, Susan Craig, Samson Hartland, Chief Andy Carville, Chief Doris Bill, Lancelot Burton, Deb Venes, and the youth of today's society, Kate is silent no more and can now claim her place in the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Thank
3: you. Our next video honors the life and work of Brian Meikle. Let's watch it. And uh, here to present the award to uh, Janet Meikle is Lisa McDonnell, Executive Director of the PDAC. Lisa, would you please come to the podium?
5: Brian Meikle is one of the most successful geologists of the modern era and holds several discoveries to his name. The best known, of course, is Goldstrike. This discovery propelled Barrett Gold to become the world's largest gold miner and generated an immense amount of wealth that has benefited Canadian companies, shareholders, and society at large. I am proud to present this award to Brian, accepted on his behalf by his wife, Janet Meikle. Janet, will you please come to the podium?
4: I am honored to accept this nomination to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. On behalf of my late husband, Brian Meikle, Brian and I had 58 memorable years together. This is a momentous occasion, congratulations inductees.
3: I said earlier that I was going to share a story about Brian Meikle and. Uh I would say that I wouldn't be standing here tonight if it wasn't for Brian. I'll tell you why. After the Ghost Strike discovery, the Franco-Nevada stock had gone from $0.65 cents to $17. And uh, my partner and I, Seymour uh, Schulich, we had decided that, well, why don't we sell Franco-Nevada and do it all over again, and we even created a new company called Euro Nevada. And um, we hired a banker, and we were one day of signing the document for um, hiring the banker for the sale of this thing when I was invited to go up to the opening of the Barrick Holt McDermott mine. And uh, so I showed up there, and, uh, you know, I had my gold, gold helmet, and I smell of the nouveau riche, and strutting around like, you know, I had made it. And, um, I mean, I was still young, and you know what. And I bumped into Brian, and I said, Brian, I said, um, you know, we, we, we're just going to, you know, sell Franco Nevada and, you know, do it all over again. And he, he looked at me, and you know, like he, he just looked re- me at, right in the eyes and said, you don't know what you're talking about, do you? And I was like thinking internally, what are you kidding? I'm going to put millions in my genes, and like, I don't know what I'm talking about. He said, no, he said, this is not the discovery of a lifetime. This is the discovery of three lifetime. And he just turned around and left me right there. (laughs) And you know what? For the rest of the day, I could not take that out of my mind. For that evening, I could not sleep. And the next morning I showed up at the office And I said, you know what? I told Seymour the story, and I said, you know what, Seymour? He's 100% right. We will never have the chance to build a company with an asset like this ever in our lifetime. And that day, we fired the banker and made the decision to build Franco Nevada. Thank you, Brian, for your golden words of wisdom. All right, thank you. We will now celebrate the career of Jim Franklin, so please roll the video.
6: James Franklin started life in North Bay, virtually a child of the Canadian Shield, born on the same terrain that would one day contribute to his success as a geoscientist. Jim Franklin is an icon in the Canadian mining community. He was a pioneer of pre-Cambrian metallogeny in Canada, having spent much of his career documenting the complex evolution of the Canadian shield and the link to its phenomenal mineral wealth. The exploration principles and techniques developed early in his career had a major impact on the subsequent discovery of significant mines, both in Canada and elsewhere. Jim's original career goals involved electrical engineering. It was the age of Sputnik, and I thought this was a pretty cool thing to do.
7: And I met a guy in residence who was a geologist and who spent his summers out on canoes and things, and sounded much more fun than sitting in an office wearing a tie. So I moved into geology and never regretted it.
6: Following his tenure at Lakehead University, Jim was hired by the Geological Survey of Canada in Ottawa.
7: Quite frankly, they created uh, the job of my dreams for me. Created a position called Regional Metalogenist for the Southern Canadian Shield, which was kind of the 007 of geology.
6: I could do pretty much what I wanted. Jim's career at the Geological Survey took him places few geologists go. He was asked to do research at the bottom of the ocean, looking for black smokers. They'd only been
7: discovered the year before. I'd heard about them, read about them, and said, you know, yeah, sure, I'd love to do that, Mike, you know, but I don't have a clue, and hello, it's Jim from North Bay, Ontario. (laughs) You know, Never been anything larger than a zodiac on Lake Superior, but sure, you know, I'd give it a go if anybody
6: wanted me to go to sea. That work led to an invitation to collaborate with the U.S. Geological Survey and other international organizations like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration.
7: So few people have ever done that, very few people have ever had the opportunity to dive up to 4,000 meters in the ocean floor and look at things, which I've done, and to work on these high temperature vents uh, with, um, for, for fundamentally eight or nine years, uh, and uh, it was wonderful.
6: His work led to a discovery about 200 kilometers off the west coast of Canada in an area called Middle Valley.
7: And we realized that we had found something highly significant. And so, uh, as it turns out, it was probably the largest uh, mineral deposit ever discovered on the seafloor.
3: And I will again welcome to the podium John Baird, Chair of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, to present the award to Jim.
2: Thank you very much, Pierre. It is, because of Jim Franklin, a distinguished geoscientist, that we understand the complex evolution of the great Canadian shield and the link to its phenomenal wealth. The Canadian shield unlocked so much opportunity for so many in this room, many in this hall of fame, and many Canadians from our past, our present, and our future. We, as a nation, are better and more prosperous for the knowledge that he has unlocked. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Jim to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Jim, please come to the podium.
7: Thank you, you, uh, John and Pierre, for the kind introduction. My success is entirely due to uh, the people with whom I've worked over the last 50 years. There's no question of that. Work in research, teaching, and exploration. Without uh, the exceptional insight of senior managers at the Geological Survey, I can name D.B. McLaren, Ray Price, and um, Chris Finley, um, I might never have received the opportunity to expand my horizons and uh, those to understand ore deposits throughout the Canadian Shield, and in particular to do the Marine Minerals Project, which, as was mentioned, was something that I must admit I never had the faintest idea I'd ever get involved in doing, but was uh, an enormous uh, opportunity. Innumerable mining companies have opened their doors to me over the years. they allowed me to tour mines, uh, gave me data. It's one of the great things about the Canadian mining industry that they, in fact, would do this, uh, really, um, with ever, without ever any question whatsoever. There are three people that I want to acknowledge first in my little talk here. First is Stuart Roscoe. Uh, Stu's nephew Bill is here, and many of you know Bill. Um, but uh, Stu uh, was my first boss at the Geological Survey of Canada. Uh, he uh, challenged me to think carefully and observe carefully in the field, uh, but to think even more carefully about what these observations would mean. There were many times when we visited a mine in northern Ontario, we'd be driving back to the motel, Stu would say, well, what do you think of that? And. Being totally overconfident, (laughs) I'd give him my analysis with a smug attitude that I knew everything and uh, then he'd spend the next half hour pointing out all the things I'd missed and uh, uh, things that I hadn't observed correctly and certainly what I had not interpreted properly. I vowed to do better the next day. uh, (laughs) Well, I'm still trying to do better because you go on in life like that. Stu was very instrumental in defining my PhD thesis. The second person is Don Sankster who unfortunately passed away a couple of weeks ago. Don mentored me as a graduate student, spent a considerable amount of time in the field with me during my PhD work, and when I rejoined the survey in 75, he was my first boss. He taught me the value of being able to identify key factors that explain the presence of mineralization um, and ensured that I had a free reign to study the deposits in the Canadian Shields, focusing on specific areas first to make an actual contribution and then trying to summarize this periodically in terms of the larger picture. I started out in Finflant Snow Lake and went on from there. Thirdly, I'd like to acknowledge uh, Dick Hutchison, also a a Canadian Mining Hall of Fame member and my PhD supervisor at University of Western Ontario. I was Dick's first PhD student. He loved a good argument and we had a lot of them, if any of the students who were there at the time would know. However, he could usually defeat me with some prescient observation in the field that I hadn't really made, and once again uh, show that I wasn't quite correct in my analysis. Um, And so I went on to, uh, with the uh, direction of Dick to complete my thesis and guide me to my future career. As most of you know, Dick went on to have many, many excellent graduate students that he'd mentored and supervised at Western and then later at Colorado School of Mines, and he's remembered, remembered fondly by all of us. I'd like to spend the rest of my time just talking a little bit about the major constituencies in which I have worked. First, the academic one. I learned during my six-year academic career at Lakehead and my subsequent adjunct professorships that were mentioned earlier, that the central role of universities is to teach geoscience in a well-rounded and complete manner. The quality of teaching at universities, I don't think, is given enough credit and evaluating professors for tenure and promotion because it's actually hard to evaluate. Popularity is important amongst professors, but clarity of explanation and the ability to challenge students to apply what they have learned and to define what we don't know are important parts of university education. Professors who do this should be recognized more broadly. Secondly, universities are the only constituency where curiosity-based research can really be done. This is really truly public good research and must be well publicly supported because it's the basis for everything else that we do. Without the work that is done at universities, we would be nowhere in terms of understanding the processes of mineralization. Without those, People who have developed the seemingly esoteric isotopic approach or focused on the structure of minerals, uh, solved the solubility problem, or done field aspects of geological units that may not even have direct relevance to ore deposits are those which give us that underpinning science that allow us as mineral deposits geologists to build and continually, continually rather refine our models. Secondly, government geological surveys tend to be the unacknowledged major contributors to the success of our industry. Canada has by far, I think, the very best set of geological surveys of any country in the world. Its provincial and territorial surveys produce a continual flow of new maps and attendant information that form the basis for all exploration work in Canada, and in the modern digital world, within a few months of completing a field project, the map and underpinning data are all available to us. Finally, I've spent 20 years as a consultant in the Canadian mining industry. I've worked with everything from the major companies to little two-person prospecting teams. I've noted that the most successful mining and exploration companies are those which maintain a keen interest and involvement, not just in supporting, but also in doing research related to understanding ore deposits' presence. I'll give you two examples. Both of these were successful, and they were so successful they no longer exist, because they got butt out by bigger guys. Falconbridge, which was started by Thayer Lindsley, and Western Mining in Australia, where Roy Woodall provided excellent guidance for many, many years. Both of these made research a basic tenet of day-to-day work. Falconbridge, for example, heard of some madman in Detroit who had developed an electromagnetic for finding ore deposits. Everyone else laughed and thought this was a ridiculous thing, but they employed Thomas Edison to come to Sudbury, and by golly, he found an anomaly that became, ultimately, the Falconbridge Mine. Its spin-offs had enormous success throughout Naranda and many other districts. Western mining, under Roy Woodall's stewardship, discovered the Cabalda Nickel Camp and Olympic Dam. Uh, Roy once told me that he expected every geologist in his organization to be a research geologist and should they develop a problem, they were to follow up on that problem, get support for it, which he would readily supply from the company, go out to the universities as needed and solve the problem. The message is simple. Companies that have the most open approach to their work and are most encouraging of supporting research are those which will be most successful. Canada, again, is a leader with both Camiro and, most recently, the Canadian Mining Innovation Council's Footprints Project, which has given us new insights into the geological, geochemical, and geophysical ore district characteristic at all scales, and evaluated methods for gold, uranium, and porphyry copper methods. This is widely supported by the Canadian mining industry, and it is very much to our credit because there are few other countries or jurisdictions in the world where this has happened. In closing, it's obvious that these three constituencies are clearly interdependent in terms of their work and their contribution to the success of the Canadian mining industry. We have the best, most integrated approach to work that each of these provide, and that's why Canada is a world leader in finding mines. Finally, I want to acknowledge my wife, Claire, and daughter, Meredith, who've provided me with outstanding support, significant direction, and a lot of laughs. Claire and I have been married for 50 years, but she says it's only 25 because I've been away the other half. <laughs> <laughs> and she's probably right. That's the story for most of us. And it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much.
8: Uh, reward, uh, your pleasure, uh,
3: and now we will hear the story of Sandy Laird. Please watch the video.
6: A strong work ethic came early to Alexander Laird, or Sandy, as he's known to most. Born in Invermere, BC, he was helping on the family farm as young as six years old.
8: Dad was a logger, so he was out with his horses, horse logging all year, and particularly in the winter. Somebody else had to go and get the firewood and go and milk the cows and bring the cows in from the range every day and mend the fences and dig the ditches. and.
6: Sandy originally believed his career involved working with horses.
8: Well, it started at six years old and I was driving a team of horses when I was 10 and breaking my own horses when I was 12 or 13 and working for packers and guides and outfitters, packing horses when I was about 14, 15, 16.
6: A chance conversation with a dean from UBC created Sandy's interest in mining.
8: I think at about 16 years old, I worked at my first mine, which was not too far away up the road, about seven or eight miles. And uh, it was a very small mine, it was 70 tons a day, compared to the hundreds of thousands of tons
6: a day now. After working at several mines, Sandy went back to school. In 1957, he graduated from the University of British Columbia with a degree in mine engineering. That was the beginning of a successful career that spanned almost 60 years. Sandy had five jobs in his first three years out of school, including mapping with the Geological Survey of Canada. Moving a lot was part of his plan for ongoing learning. I th- I've even passed that on to the students that
8: I mentor now. I said, make sure that you got a plan. Your plan hasn't, doesn't have to be casting concrete, but make sure that you're growing and learning and and
6: change at least every three years. In 1960, Sandy joined Placer, which eventually became Placer Dome. He spent 39 years with the company as he oversaw the development of approximately 18 mines on three different continents.
8: There was one period there where we had five mines under various stages of construction, from just finishing off to just starting, and and that was in uh, three parts of the world. So there was a lot of... (laughs) a lot of plane travel, trying to keep on top of it. By that time, I was the Vice President of Project Development in Vancouver.
6: Sandy became basically Placer's go-to person when it was uh, anything to do with mine development, anything from evaluation to construction. Sandy retired from Placer Dome in 1999 at 65, but went on to create his own consulting firm and then become advisor to Quadra Mining or 2015, I pulled my last cheque, so I was 78
8: or 79 years old at that point.
3: <laughs> I'm here to present the award to Sandy is uh, Chris uh, Twig Mo- Mo- No. <laughs>
9: Twig
3: will do. Twig will do, okay, fine, <laughs> thank you.
10: All right, here
8: you go, Chris.
10: It's my great honor and privilege tonight to present this award to Sandy Laird. Sandy, throughout his career, has shown amazing leadership, management, and technical skills as one of a key group of unsung heroes in our business, those that successfully engineer, build, and operate major mines and plants. Plants constructed and operated in many places that many in this room will never have heard of, and probably never want to go to. Done on time and on budget. In an era and in locations with no email, no cell phones, no faxes, sometimes no phones, and sometimes even no snail mail. Amazing accomplishments. And that helped build Placer to be the incredible powerhouse that it was. I'm very proud to present this award to Sandy and to welcome him into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Sandy, will you please come up to the podium to receive your award?
8: Thank you. I spent much time trying to answer the question, why me? Was it because I was successful? And if so, what made me successful? We all know that integrity, hard work, and pure luck contribute to success, but there is so much more. Looking back at my 60 years in the mining industry, I realize that every success that I have achieved can be traced to someone who helped me to make the right choices. So I would like to take a minute to consider how mentoring impacted me. I was introduced to the mineral industry as a 16-year-old farm boy, working as a crusher operator in a 70-ton per day concentrator. This came about with the help of a young mining engineer that I had met, and he became my first mentor. During that same year, I met two professors of geology, and they convinced me to enroll at UBC. They also introduced me to the company they were working for, and that opened the door to the next five summers working in exploration and underground mining, all of which exposed me to a great deal of mentoring. Then when I graduated from UBC, jobs were impossible to find. But my previous employers found work for me in mining and exploration and continued to mentor me over the next three years. Fortunately, before I left UBC, I was interviewed by Doug Little, a vice president of Placer Development. Doug had no job for me, but he took the time to give me some good advice. And four years later, Doug's advice paid off. I was unemployed, but Doug tracked me down and offered me a position at the Craigmont mine where construction had just started. This launched me on my 39-year career with Placer. During all my years with Placer, there was always someone who was planning my future, expanding my experience, presenting me with new challenges, and coaching and mentoring me to succeed. I believe the mentoring that I received over my lifetime was the major reason for my success. But there was also another reason for my success. I was always surrounded by teams of excellent people whose skill and ability was unsurpassed, who supported and mentored me and mentored one another, and who were motivated to work as a team, wherever they were located in the world. And I was always made to feel part of that team. The point I am making, ladies and gentlemen, is that I didn't arrive at this podium by myself. I am the product of the mentoring and support of hundreds of people throughout my career. Without their intervention, I would not be here tonight. And since there was no way to pay them all back, I have done what I can to help young mining engineers in a similar way. And this led me to a 20-year association with the Norman B. Cavill Institute of Mining Engineering at UBC, and I thank Dr. Scoble who is here tonight for making that opportunity possible. As all of you know, none of this would have been possible without the support of my late wife, Betty, who, with our two sons, followed me around the world as I pursued my career. Nor could I have done it without Margaret, my executive assistant for 15 years and who later became my wife. Now our roles are reversed. Margaret is management and I'm the assistant. And, of course, Margaret is at my table as well. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for giving me this opportunity to reflect upon my career and to acknowledge the many, many supporters who have helped me on my journey, a journey that experienced 60 years of change, from my first mine at 70 tons a day to my last mine at 120,000 tons per day. It was a great, great ride, and I wish I could do it all over again. Thank you. It's an honor to be here this evening.
3: That's terrific. Don't we all want to do it all over again? Yep, I'd, I'd sign up for that in a minute, but uh, time goes by and uh, we have one last inductee, Jim Gill, and let's hear how much gall this man has. Please roll the video.
6: (laughs) James Gill grew up in Montreal, the son of a civil engineer and grandson of a geology professor.
9: because of my exposure to the geological side of it. It was interesting to me, and my grandfather had a pretty good life, so I thought, well, I guess I'll give geology a try.
6: After graduating with bachelor's and master's degrees from McGill University, Jim obtained a Ph.D. from Carleton University. His first jobs as an economic geologist were for companies like Texas Gulf, Getty Mines, and Denison Mines.
9: At Denison I got a lot of exposure to how to do deals and I think that helped me a lot uh, when I decided uh, to try to do it for myself.
6: It was that unique set of skills that allowed Jim Gill to go from economic geologist to CEO of a four billion dollar company.
9: I guess I had a bit of an entrepreneurial bent and I wanted to try to uh, see if I could do it on my own. In 1981, I made that decision. It took a while to get everything going, but, uh, but I've never regretted it for a minute, that's for sure.
6: The first step was raising the initial $250,000 to get started. That's when Jim approached Leo Thibodeau.
9: And I was hoping that I'd be able to convince him to put $25,000 in to get me started. We had lunch and at the end of the lunch he said, well, I'm I'm going to put in a quarter of a million dollars. So I thought, whoa, this is uh, calling my bluff, isn't it? (laughs) Now I'm going to have to do this because I said I was going to and uh, and now I'm going to have the money.
6: John Jodry became the other initial investor and Ore Resources was born. Jim started by making a deal with Brominko, which had land holdings in the Valdor Gold Camp. They found several deposits and created two mines, Norlartic and Kearns.
9: Then this is a picture of Howard and I and Len Gorman, who was our mine manager uh, with the first gold bar from the Cairns mine back in 1988. Big day for us, first production.
6: But there was a deal with Quebec's provincially owned Sochem that led to a major deposit.
10: It became really exciting for ore when uh, in uh, 1989 they found the Luvacore Massive Sulphide deposit which was quite a major copper zinc deposit. It was one of the biggest uh, uh, copper zinc deposits found in Canada since about uh, 1963 or so when Kid Creek was found.
6: Jim says Ore Resources' success was built one project at a time.
9: I think we were particularly disciplined. We never tried to get carried away and develop three or four different things at one time. We'd find something, we'd borrow the money, we'd develop it, we'd pay it off. Then we'd get the next one.
6: Those projects included the Andacoya and Cobrada Blanca mines in Chile, and Duck Pond in Newfoundland.
9: We got all our money back from Andacoya in in about two years, and we were suddenly sitting there with two cash-flowing mines, plus our gold mines. So we had to look for something else and we ended up at the end of the day purchasing Cabral Blanca from Cominco and Tech.
6: In 2007, Tech, who had participated with Jim on other ventures, decided to make an offer to purchase or resources for 4.1 billion dollars.
9: I think that it was probably the fastest deal ever done uh, in that we had our first discussions, in, I think it was in June, around the 20th of June in 2007, and we closed the deal in an, around the 20th of August in 2007. To decide to go forward with it in that short a period of time was a testament to the quality of the, of the operations that we had and the relationship and trust that the two companies had in each other.
6: Like many successful mining entrepreneurs, Jim wants to share his success. He independently funds a facility called Hope Haven, an equine therapy center for children with disabilities.
9: And I'll tell you if you go up there and you see some of these children and young adults who have serious disabilities and you see them start laughing and stuff like that when they're riding on these horses it just it makes you feel pretty good I'll tell you.
6: Jim also supports diabetes research and PDAC's mining matters through the Gill Family Foundation. Jim is still involved in the industry and is on the boards of companies like Torremont Industries, the Ontario Caterpillar Dealer, and Turquoise Hill Resources, a large Mongolian copper project.
3: I will ask uh, Anthony Vaccaro, group publisher of the Northern Miner and the director of the Key of Mining Hall of Fame, to come to the table to
5: present. Please. Thank you, Pierre. Well, it was fun to have the honor to induct Jim Gill, someone that gave the Northern Miner so much great content while he was building up the Ore Resources story. You he heard a lot of great stuff up on that video. There's one stat that I really like as well, and that's when 1981, when Jim started Ore Resources, he started it with one employee. Jim Gill. In 2007, when he sold to Tech Resources for $4.1 billion, as you just heard, over 2,500 employees. It's a lot of wealth creation. It's a great Canadian story. And another element to the story that's wonderful as well is that Jim actually joins his grandfather as an inductee to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Jim's entrepreneurial savvy, his passion for mining, and his deep belief in the societal benefit of our industry are what led him to become one of our industry's great company builders. So, and as anyone will tell you, he's just an all-around really good guy. So, Jim, it's a great honour for me to present to you this induction into the Mining Hall of Fame. Jim. Thank
9: you, Anthony. Tonight is a very special one for me. It is a great honour to have been selected for induction into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame joining many great contributors to our mineral resource business, including, as Anthony mentioned, my grandfather, who was inducted in 2003. Of course, it is the team of people which makes success possible, and I had the privilege of working with many skilled professionals over 26 years at OR. Without their important contributions to its business strategy and implementation, OR's success would not have been possible. To Leo Thibodeau, my original partner, who provided much of the capital to start ore, I will be eternally grateful. There were many people who helped ore over the years. In fact, as mentioned by 2007, there were about 2,500 members of the team here in Canada and in Chile. The discovery of eight mineral deposits the construction and operation of four gold mines, two polymetallic-based metal mines, and two open-pit copper mines is a testament to the hard work of the ore team. Finding ore bodies is great, but you also need financing, and in many cases partners, to develop them and make a real return on your invested capital. I believe that ore delivered the goods for our partners, our lenders, and our shareholders over the years. On a more personal note, I would like to thank my grandfather for spurring my interest in geology and mining. My father for teaching me self-discipline and the importance of ethics. And my sons, Graham and Trevor, and their mother, Darren, for putting up with my long working days and travel schedule over many years. Without their support, Orr could not have been successful. I would also like to thank my wife Nancy for encouraging my vision for ore and to listening to my endless babbling on about geological and mining related activities. My heartfelt thanks to all of you. I would like to leave you this evening with two thoughts. Firstly, the mining world today is being severely challenged by individuals and groups who believe that this industry is a major contributor to destroying our planet. As an industry, I believe that we do not do a good enough job educating the general public as to the benefits we provide to society as a whole. It seems that many people do not realize that without mining there would be no electricity, cars, internet, heating, phones, TV, airplanes, and the list goes on. We need a greater focus on making the general public aware of the major contribution our industry makes to the global standard of living. This must include education, beginning at an early age, and I strongly encourage each of you to contribute to the PDAC Mining Matters programs for student education. Mining does matter, and we better make our case strongly if we wish our great industry to survive. Lastly, when I started OR, the objective was to build a real company from scratch. It was hard work, and it required a combination of persistence, team building, good financial management, and of course, some good luck. For example, in the early days, we had a gold property in Valdor called Orinata, which we believed had the potential to host a new gold deposit. After much drilling, shaft sinking, and underground exploration work, we determined that the deposit was not of ore grade. It was not until some time later, when we were active in Chile, that I realized that oranata meant no ore in Spanish. (laughs) A lesson well learned. Fortunately, persistence led to new discoveries which became profitable mines. For those of you who have the urge to build your own company and are prepared to take reasoned chances and be persistent, I encourage you to give it a try. We need entrepreneurs like you in this industry. Always remember that dreams can and do come true. Thank you all very much for the great honour you have given to me this evening. I will never forget it.
3: Well, Jim, you are absolutely correct, and the way I put it about our industry is very simple. Without copper, our civilization would not exist today, plain and simple. And it's just going to get even more so as we electrify the entire world. So you're absolutely correct, and I totally agree with you. Now, the formal part of the evening is over, but before you run anywhere, I do have to tell you something a little bit personal. You see, tonight, is my last appearance here as your Master of Ceremonies as I have decided to join the Time's Up movement. (laughs) If you can't beat them, join them. So it's been a privilege and an honour to be your Master of Ceremonies for the past 18 years as we've inducted over 100 men and women legends to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. I want to thank you all for year after year, coming here, showing up of your support for this great event. I always knew I could count on you. I could count on you to be forgiving, supportive, and above all, just plain fun. And in the true tradition of the one-year-old uh, one Time's Up movement, I will leave you in the hands of a much younger, brighter, and gender-neutral master of ceremony uh, in the person of Anthony Vaccaro. Pierre, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you very much. That's fabulous. Thank you. The gold Thank standard for the MCs.
8: Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Fantastic job.
3: Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. I'm going to grab my sheet here. Thank you so, so much. You can please sit down. I have two more minutes. and uh, So, um, the bar is open. That's really the most important thing I wanted to tell you. Uh, for another uh, half hour or so, uh, please top up your glass, reunite with friends if you want, and think about the nomination for next year for the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. We need more women, so if you can think of a few good names that are old enough, I mean they have to be 65, I know, but you know, you're going to get there someday, don't hope too fast. Uh, And with that I wish you all a good night and may all your pain be champagne. Good night.
0: That does it for this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, you can help out the podcast by liking it, subscribing to it, forwarding it. All those things help raise the visibility of the podcast and bring in new listeners. Thanks again to our podcast sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance, and this week's Mining Minute sponsor, Yorbo Resources. That's it for this episode. Bye-bye.